I'm going to be reading uh, from Colossians, um, just following on um, our way through this little letter as uh, Paul trying to um, write to, trying to disciple a group of people really in this town called Colossae where they were being pulled and, and pressured by all sorts of different um, uh, tensions, really. Some of them being pressured back into a pagan way of life. Some of them being pressured back into an old uh, way of life that was much closer to the Jewish form of religion that they had known, perhaps. And some of them just really not sure at all how it meant to follow Jesus. And uh, Paul's writing this little letter to help try and help those people work out what does it mean for us to follow Jesus together. And down 2,000 years of history, uh, people have read this together. And as they've wrestled with it in their own context, they've tried to make sense of what does it mean to have Jesus at the center of your life? What's the implication of that? And when you look at the book of Colossians as a whole, you can't get away from the fact that what Paul seemed to imagine would be the most helpful thing for people to get a hold of was, and this is going to sound really simple, it's actually all about Jesus. It's not primarily about the rules you keep or about the way you look or about the things you're doing. Primarily, it's about what Jesus has done. And he's taken the strain. He's taken the load. He's the one who is the center around all of which this holds. And I know that sounds absolutely obvious, but some days that's worth reminding ourselves. That actually this life you're leading and the life you're leading for the sake of others and the life you're leading for the glory of God is actually made possible because Jesus has done the heavy work first. And your life flows out of that. It's not in any sense the burden of am I good enough? Am I able enough? Am I doing well enough? It actually flows out of all that Jesus has done first. And so as we look at this uh, today... I want to just highlight probably two things are really my, um, my sort of center point. You can't have two center points, can you? Anyway, <laughs> it all goes a bit wrong at that point, doesn't it? There's two things. One is that as followers of Jesus, our lives are patterned on Jesus. He makes it patterned on his, and we'll look at that. And then the second thing is that because that happens then there's some things that we actually just need to put to death. There's some things can't coexist. And um, I was interested to hear Susie speak earlier about that idea that some of us might actually feel need, we need saving. And it was an interesting phrase. And I think as you were talking about it, it's like I don't, I, what I was hearing you say, and if I'm wrong, don't tell me. Um, but what I was hearing you say, it's not like you've never been saved, but it's actually just in the midst of the situation you're in right now. It feels like there's a sort of a sticky patches that you're in that you just need saving from and saving out of. And I think that may well be appropriate in the light of what we're going to read together. I'm going to, um, in terms of reading, I want to sort of go back a little over the passage that Ian uh, was looking at last week, not in any sense to, to rework that passage, but just to highlight some things, because that'll take us into the first passage of chapter 3. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 2, verse 9, and I'll read through to 15, and then we'll drop that bit in between, and we'll pick it up at chapter 3. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity 
lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your sinful nature was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let's just jump down then to the beginning of chapter 3. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's the line you just sung. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God's coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. When Paul, whenever Paul was sort of helping people work out how do you tell your story as a Christian, he always does it the same way. And the story begins this way. Before you knew Christ, you were dead. That's the way Paul always begins his story. Before you knew Christ, you were dead. And he does it here again. Tells a story. You were dead before you knew Jesus. In Ephesians, he puts it so graphically. This is what it was like before you knew Jesus. You were separate from Christ, without hope, and without God in the world. So really sort of almost like a brutal sort of hard hitting saying that's what life was like before you knew Jesus. Now one of the interesting things is the longer you know Jesus the more you forget that. <laughs> the longer you grow used to what having Christ means. The longer you go knowing hope, the longer you go knowing God the more you forget what life's like without that. Now, it's not the case that everybody who's not a Christian, you know, that they're all dead unhappy. But actually, what Paul will want to say, and what the Christian tradition tells us, is that actually there's some really primal needs and basic desires in our hearts that cannot go undealt with. But in Christ, you find... Forgiveness, you find righteousness. In Christ, you find hope. 
and actually you live with God. What I didn't realize fully until I came to look at this passage again and to begin to prepare for this morning is just how Paul retells the story of the Colossians' lives and in by, definite, by sort of implication, our lives. And what he does, well, let me show you. So he starts with that thing I just said, that actually before you knew Christ, you were dead. And in the verse before, he said, and you were buried in baptism. I don't need to go into detail about this, but you know that when we baptize people, and we are going to baptize people, but we're going to wait because we'll do it outside. And uh, we're a soft lot. Um, but we will do a baptism in the next few uh, months. And you know that when we do it, we'll do it out in the paddock and we borrow someone's big tank and we get hold of people and we push them under. And it is this very visual burial. And then we bring them back up and they're raised to life. They were dead, they were buried And God made us alive. And that was what Ian was talking about last week. How did God make you alive? By forgiving you your sins, by disarming the powers that stood against you. And you were raised through faith in Jesus. That brilliant phrase in verse 12, where uh, Paul says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised Him, who? Jesus from the dead. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raises you to life and raises me. And then in chapter 3, he begins, So, since you've been raised with Christ, now set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. It's kind of like the story goes, Now, you're changed. You've been raised from the dead. Now, set your heart and your minds on the things above. Until what? Until you, uh, in verse 4, for when Christ, who's your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Now, this may absolutely be obvious to you, but like I said, it struck me probably more forcibly than I've ever looked at it before, because probably I've never really read it closely enough. But I don't think it's, it is obvious now that what Paul is doing is saying, what happened to you is exactly what happened to Jesus. It's the same story. He died, he was buried, he was made alive, he was raised in the resurrection, he was ascended on high, and he will come again. Your life and my life now are so intertwined with Jesus's that what was true for him is true for us. And we're living our life in the light of that story, not muddling through on our own. Now, I, I kind of... New one. Hmm, very good. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking, that's, that's interesting. At least. At least it's interesting, yeah? Give me at least that. And you're going, well, yeah, we've seen it all the time. I've not seen that in, in those ways. Seriously. Now, if Paul is wanting to do that, because Paul is saying to these people in Colossae, if you want to be serious about following Jesus' as disciples, actually, the thing I need you to know, two things, it's all about Jesus. And secondly, your life is so entwined with him 
That what's true of him is true of you, and what's true of you is true of him. That actually, you're not somehow desperately trying to please God on your own. But actually, I'm glad she's here. But actually, (laughs) but actually, actually, I don't know if this is an appropriate language to use. It is like I'm holding on to the coattails of Jesus. Maybe that's a, an image that might help. It's kind of like what happened to him. I'm holding on to him. I'm trusting in that. I'm holding on to that. That's true. So how can we live? Well, the resurrection ethic... The way of living. What does the resurrection mean generally? Well, loads of stuff, but generally it means at least this. That death doesn't get the final word. That's at least what resurrection means. Death doesn't get the final word. And deathliness doesn't get the final word. The stories don't have to end in tragedy. That actually, when we're involved, and when we're there, and when we're praying, and when we're helping, and we're getting alongside people, what we're saying is, actually, we believe in resurrection, which sounds ridiculous, because dead things stay dead, generally, but not if you're holding on to the coattails of Jesus. For the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's living in you and I. So I'm not actually, and this is a battle, is it not? Because you and I, were rational people. We know how things end. We know how stories end. We know how tragedies end. But actually, you get in the middle of them and you go, no, resurrection hope comes in. And there's a possibility of an ending that you couldn't imagine. And this is what happens in the lives of individual Christians. Because some of you, if we let you tell your stories, you go, I was this, but now I'm this. And I never imagined I would be this five years ago. Five years ago, I thought I knew where my story was going. But now, it changed. Well, why did it change? Resurrection hope. We go as people of the resurrection in general. The ascension ethic, the idea that when Jesus rose from the dead, then there's a period that the Gospels tell us that he's with his disciples, but then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And that's really important for Paul because he's going to keep on saying... You're holding on to the coattails of Jesus. You too ascended to the right hand. You're there. And unexpected perspectives. Because I'm seeing things differently. So when you're in contexts where everybody else is going, I think it's going to have to be like that, you can be the one that says, do you know what? There's a different way of looking at this. One that is filled with hope. One that is filled with love. One that is filled with faith. Why? Because I'm sitting in a different place. I'm sitting in a different place. And then finally, a hope-filled ethic. The idea that, uh, as Paul says in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, and what that looks like is that end, when Jesus appears and everybody bows the knee, when Jesus appears and everything is wound up, when Jesus appears and he transforms all things, when that day happens, 
you'll appear with him in glory. <laughs> That'll be your day too. And so the unimagined possibilities. What might be possible if you're filled with hope? What's that look like for your family? What's it look like for your workplace? What's it look like for your own personal life? What's it look like for your attitudes and for your responses? Well, that's probably worth just reflecting on at some stage. That's so, so my first thing to hold on to, because I, I know that we forget stuff really easily. So go away with this. Your life, you are on the coattails of Jesus, hanging on. <laughs> and what's true of him is true of you. And actually that means that there's hope. That means there's a different perspective. And that means there are different possibilities because you're ho- holding on to the coattails of Jesus. Hold that. Take that with you. <laughs> and the second thing is, it means that there's certain things that need to change. He goes on in verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And the stuff he starts to talk about are essentially things that will kill you or you will kill them. And uh, I was thinking, I did think that, and I thought, that's a great thought, Neil, well done. That's a very original thought. And then I realized that when I did a little bit of very surface research that someone in the 17th century said it, called John Owen, who was a 17th century uh, writer, preacher, uh, Puritan, and he sounds like he's from the hip hop generation where he says, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. But actually, he was a 17th century white uh, British person in a book called The Mortification of the Flesh. He said this He said, Either you'll put to death the sin that will bring you down, or it'll bring you down. Because this stuff will on- only end one way. So you've got to work out. How are you going to manage this? Because I think Owen, without wanting to put words into his mouth, but let me just say it. I think Owen realized that actually there's some stuff that stands against what God would want for you and me. And if you let it, it'll bring you down. So the only way is you've got to bring it down. And the three areas that Paul talks about seem so contemporary in the era of Me Too, in the era of Black Lives Matter, and in a week when Jamie Carragher is suspended for his job for spitting at a motorist who tries to wind him up. The first two you've known about. The, second, the third might just be news for you. It's very minor news. But these are the things that Paul says can't stay. And it's interesting when you outline them. The, the, first, three are, the first two are clear. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, and greed. And then the second set, he says, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. And then the third, those are my words, not his, but he says, here, no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, which was a sort of like a, the language of how you would belittle people who didn't belong to your race. A Scythian, they were the frightening people of uh, battle that you want, want to avoid, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. And I think it's just really interesting that those three things Paul says, these are deathly and they will bring you down. Immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed 
will bring you down. Essentially, in a context like this, Paul is saying that you make promises to God. And what the devil wants to do is make you break your own commitments. Which is essentially what happens if you're in a a married relationship and then you break that covenant to go have an affair with someone else. Or if you're single and you say, I'm going to I'm going to live for God. And it may be that God will lead me to someone and we can end up getting married. That would be great. But till that day, I'm going to live for him. And I think for most of us, though, it's not actually... The doing, I think the doing is sort of like the end of all of that. I think it's the wondering. I think it's playing with the opportunities. I think it's the thoughts that begin, I wonder what if. And you know as well as I do that that leads you down a road of just making you feel bit rubbish about everything. Those of you that have got commitments to other people, those thoughts that begin, what if? What if I play with that idea? What if I flirt a bit more? What if I cross the line just one more time? Nobody feels closer to God at the end of that. <laughs> Nobody goes home going, no, that's a good day. The best is you feel you got away with it. The worst is, you just feel tainted. It'll kill you, or you'll kill it. But it's only going to end in one way. And the anger, and the rage, and the malice, and the slander, and the filthy language. And some, some of you might actually feel closer to that than you do the first one. <laughs> And you and I both know that deep within all of us is a really, we are really skilled at finding a reason why. Why did you lose it? Why did you flip your lid? Why did you say those things? And there's always a good reason. And it's always someone else. And Paul says that will kill you in the end. It's almost that self-righteous anger and the rage where you just flip. There used to be, I don't think it's said half as much as it used to be said, and I think it's probably helpful, you know, better out than in, better that you say it. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> if, if, if that helps you, well, good for you, because nobody else around you is feeling better because you said it. And um, I guess we all, in the room, we all know how damaged, how much damage we have done to other people. When we've spoken, when we've said, when we've let our frustration, when we've let our anger out. And it's hard to rebuild sometimes. It kills. So put it to death. And then the racism 
and the exclusion and the arrogance and the superiority. None of us want to feel that we are like that. But sometimes you know you scratch a little. It's not that far. There's some people that you really struggle with. And let's be honest, if we want to be honest a little bit more, there might actually be a whole race of people you struggle with. Scratch it. It's never that far away. And whether it's frustration of life that says, I wish life had been better or different, that leads us to break our commitments, or whether it's disappointment with other people or our desire to control them or our desire to get them to do what we think is best that leads us to anger and malice and we end up using language that really strips and doesn't help. Or whether it's fear or arrogance. Paul says, this stuff will kill you. So put it to death. How? How can I deal with this? When Paul is speaking in verse 2, and uh, in chapter 3 he says, well, verse 1 really, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on things above. And Paul never just does one of those two things. So it, 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 I think the, the, most, the least helpful would be some sort of uh, patronizing or glib response to say these are deep issues within us and actually just, just get your heart right. Now of course it's a heart problem most of the time. Of course it's a heart problem. And it's our hearts that actually need saving. It's your loves. You know? And I haven't got time to go into this but um, there's a whole way of thinking about how do you do an ethic? How do you do virtue ethics? And it, it's, it comes down to what do you really love and where's your love directed? You've got to work out what do you love and who do you love and how do you love and how will you love. And that's something to do with your heart. Your heart that's ascended, your heart that's different. It's my heart that's the root of a lot of this stuff. But it doesn't stop just there. He then says, and set your minds on things above. It's heart and mind. It's not just heart. It's not just a quick prayer at the end of a service that will sort this out. It's actually learning to think differently. It's learning to respond differently. It's learning to think in a different way. Some of you in the room have got much better expertise at this sort of stuff than I have, and I would claim to have. And so this is fairly surface, but... How do you think differently? I've, I found this sort of stuff really helpful for me. When this, or whatever it is, comes, the first thing I need to do is own it. I am really good at blaming other people. To be honest, for any number of things. Who said yeah? <laughs> I thought it was Maggie with a very deep voice. But I realized it was Ian on behalf of both of them. <laughs> Mostly it is Ian's fault, if I'm honest. But I'm really good at that. I'm skilled at that. Yeah, don't keep... All right, all right, all right, stop now. You've got a song to practice, go on. Um, 
And owning it means I don't blame other people. Owning it allows you to confess. You can't confess if you think it's someone else's fault. Owning it says, do you know what? Yeah, that's me. I find it helpful if I begin to ask myself why. Why am I acting like this? Why am I acting? Why is this a big temptation right now? Why am I responding like this now? Why am I fearful of this person right now? What is happening in my life? I'm trying to use my mind to think this through. What is going on? And in the midst of it, I try and keep the big picture. When I was a really young pastor, um, someone once said to me um, really early on, they said, write down 10 things you'd lose if you had an affair and keep them in your drawer. And then as a young pastor, I realized that actually the age group that was most attracted to me was the over 80s, which was a bit of a disappointment, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, the 10 things didn't seem to be that important. But, um, I mean, no disrespect you if you're over the age of 80, you know, but it's getting younger every year. Um, <laughs> don't know why I told you that, but we could probably edit that out later. Some of you are going, really? Uh, even if I were 80, I don't think so. Anyway, um, they said to me, write 10 things down and put it in your drawer, the things you'd lose if you had an affair. And it was really quite interesting to do that. You'd lose obvious things. Your family, I'd lose, um, lose a job, an income. But I'd lose more than that. I'd lose the respect of friends and people over years. I'd lose a witness to people who I've tried to encourage to follow Jesus. I'd lose a reputation. I'd lose a sense of who I am. I'd have to try and work out, how do I make sense of all that behind me? Can you keep the big picture on this stuff? If you, if um, sexual temptation is not your thing, anger might be. And if you keep blowing up at the people who you love the most, one day they'll go. What will you lose? Keep the big picture. Share, share some of this stuff. Share with people that you trust. Sometimes just getting it out of the dark really helps. You know, this stuff always feels much bigger in the dark. <laughs> it just feels so much bigger in the dark. Share it with someone you trust. And then act positively. What can you do that's really positive, that will put some of this stuff to death, that will cut it off at the source, that will be a different way of dealing with it. And then watch. Watch your weak times. There will be times when you're tired. There will be times when you're hurt. There will be times when you're disappointed. And it's really easy to slip into habits. Because you think 
you're owed. If you're married, it's really easy if your partner has upset you to then go into that idea of, I wonder if. Because actually what you're doing is you're thinking, well, he's been a real pig. And I almost deserve to go elsewhere. She's really been difficult. So I almost deserve to play with that idea. Watch your weak times. Own it. Ask yourself why. Keep the big picture. Share with someone you trust. Act positively. Watch what's happening to your own life. It's not the only things. And for some people, they get so caught that you need really more help than you can find on your own. And there are people that are able to help you with that. My life is hid with Christ. That first story of being on the coattails of Jesus, I want that to be true. I want that life. I want the resurrection ethic. I want the ascension ethic. I want the hope-filled ethic of glory. I want to live like that. But this stuff will bring me down. So I want to put that to death so I can live for that. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Final thing. Paul says, you died and you were raised to life. And then the next minute he's saying, so put it to death. And you're thinking, come on, Paul, get your story right. Am I dead or am I not dead? And I think almost Paul's doing this thing of going, you are. You know who you are because you know whose you are. But there's bits of the old person that just will not die. <laughs> so put them to death. Deal with it. My life is on the coattails of Jesus. The enemy seeks to bring me down and deals in death. I want to choose to put to death rather than be brought to death. Amen. I love these encouraging, upbeat sermons, don't you? We're going to pray together. I wonder if Ian, you can... I do hope that out of it you can hear hope and not just judgment. I hope that you can hear out of it a way of dealing with stuff and not just a way of being um, overtaken by stuff. I hope in the midst of it you can hear salvation talk and not just death talk. In a little while we'll take communion together. And it's a fantastic place to keep coming back to. Because we can come in, two, in those two ways of the sermon, really, of coming and saying, I want the life of Jesus to be mine.
but we also come repenting, turning, deciding to walk a different way, saying, I want to live for Jesus. I want to leave behind the rubbish. I want to leave behind the temptation. I want to leave behind sometimes what are my natural reactions. And I want to live in a different way. This won't be true for all of you, but it'll be true for some of you. There's a moment where we just pause and we give each other the opportunity very quietly on your own. No one else will hear this. For you in the quietness of your own heart to own up and say, Lord, this is me. And the very act of owning up and the very act of saying, Lord, this is me, is a reminder to you that God has not left you. God doesn't turn his back on you when you're tempted. He doesn't turn his back on you when you think the worst malicious thoughts of others. He doesn't turn his back on you when you're so judgmental. He doesn't turn his back on you when you flip your lid and you say the worst things. So we come and we say, Lord, here I am. And I confess my own sin. When the Apostle John was writing to uh, churches, this is what he said about it all. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. I write this to you so that you won't sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but for the sins of of the whole world. Lord Jesus, we come this morning and we confess our own sins. And we do safely, we do so safely and we do so securely in the knowledge that Christ died, Christ rose, Christ will come again. He conquered the power of sin and he offers forgiveness. And so our lives take on that pattern of Jesus, whereby we can live for the sake of others and for the sake of God, without guilt, without fear, without condemnation.
And thank you it started on the cross, but it continues in our lives day by day. So in the name of Jesus, be forgiven. Know the forgiveness of God. Know the release. Know the setting free of the strongholds that hold you. Know the grace of God in the name of Jesus.